We just finished a series uh, at Perimeter Church. It was a seven-week series on the church. And I believe it's one of the most important subject matters that we as the people of God and you that are seeking to understand the Christian faith need to understand the church. And so after spending several weeks on the authority of the church and really looking, what is the authority? So many people in our church did not understand. They said, wow, I never understood that about the church. And then to turn to 1 Peter and start looking at the things that Peter has to say about God's church. And so I pray that God will use this in our lives today. So let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray. We ask for this church that you would bless it mightily. Thank you for all the way you have and the way you will. We pray you would even use this simple message to imprint this church with an understanding of who we are as your church. Bless it, we pray. We ask it in the great name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Uh, I think we've probably all met this person that I'm about to describe. This is a person that as a little child may be physically beaten, certainly emotionally, emotionally raped, told that he or she worthless, has no value whatsoever. Coming into teenage life, now this individual experiences inferiority and feels very unlovable. It feels that there's really no confidence that they can carry through life. And finally, in adulthood, begin to realize that something's missing and their life begins to self-destruct in many ways, emotionally, maybe morally. The person that I've just described has only one hope. You know the person I've described. How do you change that person? Do you send them to a counselor and voila, they're different? No. That particular person has got to find as their only hope a safe community. It's a community that dispenses things like unconditional love, encouragement, support, guidance. It's a community that, that teaches the truth and models good values. And over time, you watch what happens to that person who enters into that new environment. What I've just described is a microcosm analogous to our society today. You see, we're in a secularistic storm. It's no, it's no shock to anybody. We know that. We're in a secularistic storm, and it is brewing in such a way. It is hitting our, our, uh, our shores of this United States at gale force at this time. The believer's only hope for survival is in this type of condition, a biblically-based, a healthy, attractive community that we call the church. You know, the word attractive is not so often used with the word church today. We see it cutting across, counterintuitive to who the church is or who the world is today. We see the church. I just watched as I sat here and I saw only men come up here. How many of you had to think when you heard that, when you saw that? Maybe new to the church, don't understand church, you say, what's wrong with these people? There's a reason. There's actually a good reason. But it would never be understood without studying, learning, and then saying, oh, this is the great advantage for all. Not because man is superior, they are not. 
equal in every form and fashion, but it's different. Our society today, a secularistic society, what do you think it's saying to our children? We see that and we go, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. How do you think our kids feel when they see a young person who says, you know what? I don't have premarital relationships. I'm keeping myself pure to marriage. And what do a, what a the people around? They say exactly what a newcomer who's not familiar with church might say about this. They go, what is wrong with that kid? Are they out of touch? Do they not understand? Until they begin to understand, and then they go, oh, wow, I didn't know. The church, so vitally important. I'd like for you to listen to the Word of God. Now, this will be out of 1 Peter. It's chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, I invite you. It'll be up on the screen if you'd like to use it there. But I want you to listen carefully as I read God's Word. I might make one pause or two reading this. We're going to go through the text. But I want you to listen as carefully as possible so that when we finish reading, you don't think, my mind was gone. I didn't quite catch what was just read there. In fact, in honor of the Word of God, not that it's required by any form or fashion, but I'm going to ask us, let's stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Verse Peter 2, beginning in verse 4, it reads like this. And coming to him, Christ, as to a living stone, note that word, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, referring to Christians, as living stones, you're being built up as a spiritual house, note, for a holy priesthood. Very important. Why? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him, the cornerstone, will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and it became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, Christian, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Folks, this is the word of God. It's an infallible word. We say, how can it be? It is. God's word to God's people. Let's take our seats. I'm going to give you as a statement, I'll put it on the screen, kind of a, the primary overarching teaching of the text. I, I love to think simple. I got to see this. This is a complicated text. It's got, how do you make it simple? Well, here's the simple teaching of the text. The residents of this royal community, as I'll call it, the church, are considered stones. 
Stones which compromise, uh, 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 comprise a spiritual house designed for priests and priestesses. Now, I add priestesses because there's no sense of saying for male only in the text. So we understand it. I'm going to say priests and priestesses to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. So what we have in the text is an analogy using stones and a building. Now, Jesus is referred to in this analogy, he's referred to as a living stone, as a precious cornerstone, and as a stone of stumbling and offense to those who are not God's people. Now, Christians, you and I who really are faithful, we're followers of, of Christ, we're his, doesn't mean that we have no time of, of challenge and struggle and disappointment and all the things that we do in our faith that we, we, we absolutely regret. But we are truly followers, if truly followers. We're called living stones. So you get this? Christian, you and I are referred to as stones of this building. And Jesus, he's the cornerstone. That becomes a rock of offense to some, but he is a cornerstone. He is the living stone, as he's known. Now, here's interesting. If you look at Paul in the book of Ephesians, I'll read it for you, Ephesians 2. In verses 19 through 22, he uses the exact same analogy as Peter uses. So this must be something important. The, the early church must have understood this analogy, and, and they thought in this way. Now, we're the people, and we make up the building. We're the temple. And... Jesus is the cornerstone of this temple, and we are priests who are in the temple, and we have a call while we are in that temple, which means our entire Christian life. Here's how it reads in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself, and there he uses the same word, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, two simple teachings out of the text. I want you to catch these two simple teachings. Number one, every Christian is a priest or a priestess. Every Christian. I'll use a little play on words here. You, uh, I'll use a word picture game, and I want you to think with me about this. When I say a name of an occupation, I want you to picture in your mind what you see. In your mental picture, what do you see when I use the name? All right? Librarian. Librarian. Uh, just to, for fun. How many of you saw a woman with her hair in a bun? Raise your hand. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Now, truthfully, if you went across the globe and looked at every library and looked at every librarian, how many would be in a bun? How many would be women? There'd be men that are librarians. You and I don't think that way. You say, eh, that's a librarian there. And I, I didn't picture anything but that in my mind. All right, let me ask you this one. Picture the word priest. When you saw a priest, how many of you probably saw something related to a leadership maybe in the Catholic Church? How many saw that? Yeah. You see, 
we really do make pictures of various people and occupations and destinations that, that are not necessarily what they really are. We think they are. I had a little child come up to me as a coach in a team I was coaching and little, uh, little kids and, and little kid came up to me and he said, Mr. Pope, are you a priest? And I had to think for a minute about that question. And I knew what he was thinking. And I thought, no, I'm not a priest. But then inside I'm saying, yes, I am a priest. But not because I'm, I'm as an occupation, a pastor of a church in just a different denomination. It's because I'm a priest just like you're a priest. Every single Christian is a priest or a priestess. From the rest of God's teaching, which we won't go into, don't have time, trust me on this one. We all become living stones. We become priests at the moment of spiritual birth. So if you're a Christian, you're a priest. You got to start thinking that from this day forward. You are a priest. Now, the truth of it is, Scripture would make it clear, you can't quit being a priest. Now, you can certainly be a disobedient priest, but you can't quit being a priest if you're a real Christian. No more than you can quit being a Christian. Not going to happen. If you're truly one, you'll always be one. Did you know in church history, did you know that there are countless, countless, countless numbers of great men and women of faith who gave their life in defense of the teaching that I've just made? literally have gone to their grave because they stood strong on that one point, we are all priests. It had become a lost teaching that I think in great part led to what we call the Dark Ages. During the time we know of it as the Reformation, people of this church would appreciate greatly the Reformation. In that Reformation, do you know what was happening? There was an effort to say we've got to get the Word of God and the work of God back to the people of God. That was the big cry. The Word of God to the people of God. Now that was fairly successful. To get the work of God back to the people of God was not successful during the Reformation. Therefore, what we see today is in a very, very good church, maybe like this church, at Perimeter Church, where I serve, wherever. Good churches otherwise. Do you know there would be people who would say, if I don't get visited when I'm sick by my pastor of my church, then I have not been really visited by the church. Because the pastor is the priest. If I get counseling, I don't care how good the counseling is from somebody else who's in the church, if it's not the counselor on the staff, if it's not one of the pastors on the staff, then the church has not done its job. Because I'm here to be ministered to by the priest. And that's the role of the one who's the leader. 42 years ago when I went to Atlanta, I had, I had been taught very clearly the Word of God on this subject matter. I'd gone through seminary. I knew the truth about this. And I go to plant a church and I say, okay, this is going to be tough because we got to make sure that 
the people of God understand that they do the work of God. And it's not going to be me doing the work. In fact, if anything, Paul in Ephesians says, I'm to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And so every way I could, I'm pressing and pushing and saying, okay, no, no, you do it. No, no, you do it. Well, I get calls. This is odd. Here I'm pastoring a small church, baby birthed church. I mean, just in its early days, I'm doing everything. I mean, I am the youth director. Initially, we had no equipped people. In fact, when we started, we had no people. So we had then one person and then four people and eight people and seven. And so I'm having to do everything because there was nobody. I took time to equip people. I'm doing everything and everything and everything. And I'm going, oh man, this can't go on long. They're going to get a wrong understanding of what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm always saying, you've got to equip the saints. But meanwhile, people in other places, because they were hearing of this young church in Atlanta that was kind of growing fairly fast and seeing a lot of, of, of conversions. And for whatever reason, uh, people in other places, they don't do it today, but people in other places, pastors, would have their people come to Atlanta, Georgia to go to Emory particularly for special treatment, Emory Hospital. And so the thinking of, of so many pastors was, oh, well, I know of this church in Atlanta. It's called Perimeter Church, and I'll call their pastor because it's a small church. He has not much to do. <laughs> and so I would get a phone call, and here would be what I would listen to. Hi, this is so-and-so, pastor such-and-such, and I have a member from my church who is at Emory, and I will not be able to come visit them, but perhaps once a week. They're going to be in there for quite a while. I would like to ask you, Randy, would you be so kind as to visit my member each day and minister to them? Well, they don't understand that it would take me 45 minutes to drive there in the traffic, with that, it would also take me another 15 minutes to find the room. And then I would visit. And then by the time I got home, I've used the better part of an entire day with their, their member. And I remember actually saying this, I cannot tell you that I will do that, but I will assure you that someone quite equipped and prepared and, and capable of doing so, I can send somebody equipped to do that. I actually had one pastor who said to me, unless it's ordained clergy, don't send them because they will ask, and if not, they will not accept their ministry. Little do they know that I could send them somebody who is so gifted by God to be a pastor, and little do they know, they don't want me, I'm not a good pastor. But I don't care about that, it's do I have the credentials? Am I a priest? or not. That's the thinking. So I get one call from a pastor that says the very thing we're talking about. I gave the answer that I just told you that I gave the other person, but this person said, well, that's okay, just if you would send somebody. And so I'm beginning to think, who do I send? We had a man in our church at that time who had come to Atlanta several years previous to this. And this is a go-getter guy, young family. I'm telling you, he's, he'd made millions of dollars, lost millions of dollars, made millions of dollars. I mean, he's, he's high rolling in this, that, and the other in the, the, the business world and so forth, a very, very capable person, but not a Christian. 
And he came to perimeter, and when he did, he met the thing called the gospel, the good news of Christ, and his heart was changed. His life was radically changed. But let me tell you, you're talking about a man deep into the world and the ways of the world. I draw a circle. He was pinned right in the middle. And when he became a Christian, name is Joe. When Joe became a Christian, let me tell you, that foot came out of the world. Now, this one didn't follow. And he'd say, Randy, this is tough. I got a lot of bad habits. I'm doing a lot of things. I know. And so we're working and this thing's, you know, moving along like this little bit by little bit. But Joe has a tragedy in his life. Joe and Catherine, three young children. They've been in our church now about 10 years. And Joe's only daughter, his oldest of three children, I went to University of Alabama and became a cheerleader. Beautiful girl, loved the Lord. Going to the first ball game, killed in a car wreck. Joe and Catherine, oh, their hearts, as any of you know who've lost children. Can you imagine anything with deeper pain? And Joe was just crushed. But I watched something happen to Joe. When he lost his daughter, that foot that was in the world it kind of did this. It slid almost to the edge. Now his thinking was this. Let me tell you, my little girl's in eternity, and I just want to live for eternity. Well, it was very, very soon after that. He was staying very sick, went to the doctor, so forth, and they said, you got cancer. They went in to operate, and they sewed him up and said, we can't do anything. You don't have long to live. We'll put you on chemo. It'll extend your life a little bit, but it's not going to be long. Let me tell you, the day that happened, that leg, that foot that's in the world still edge, let me tell you, it just did this. And all of a sudden he says, why am I caring about this place? This is where I'm heading. I'm about to enter into eternity. And he contacted me and he said, we're good friends. He says, Randy, you got to use me well until I die. Use me in ministry. I want to do whatever God has for me. Use me. I said, I can do that. I will. Well, I've gotten a phone call. This phone call will just send somebody, and I'm immediately thinking, well, you know, what's the problem with your, your member? Well, has cancer, it's terminal, not going to live very long. There at Emory, I said, got just the person. So I called Joe. I said, hey, Joe, you want to be used of God, right? I do. All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Emory, and I want you to meet with this man dying of cancer as you are. You're still driving. You can get there. Now. I want you to go, and I want you to minister to him. He said, I will be quite happy to. He said, I actually don't know what to do. And I said, well, that's my job. I'm an equipper. I'm to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Let me explain what to do. And I just outlined it. It was very simple. Here's what you do. Would you go in, do this, do this? And he said, oh, I can do that. And so he goes to the hospital. He comes back to see me. He says, hey, Randy, I visited this man in the hospital. But let me tell you, what they didn't tell you was that he is dying any day now. He is days from death. And what he didn't tell you is this man's not a Christian. I could tell from talking to him. He doesn't understand the gospel at all. And then he said this. He said, Randy, you got to get down there and witness to him before he dies. <laughs> I said, no, Joe. You've got to go witness to him before he dies. He says, me witness? I would have no clue what to do. I said, that's my fault. I'm an equipper of the saints, and I've not done my job, so I'll do mine if you'll do yours. He said, you better do a good job, okay? 
So this one he has to meet with me, and we sit down, and I work with him and explain and kind of give him a, a very quick, you know, okay, this is what you're doing, da, da, da. and he goes, okay, I think, I think I can do that. So he goes down there, and he shares the gospel with this guy. He comes back, he does it every day until the man dies. I don't have any story to tell you of salvation that I know of, but I'll tell you this, Joe grabs me in the foyer of our church. After this man has died, he said, hey, Randy, I've been thinking about this. You should never go to hospitals. I said, what do you mean never go to hospitals? Well, Randy, tell me, how many times would you have visited that man? One time over these last few days? Yeah, about one time because you got 30, 40, 50 people to go visit in hospitals? Yeah, you can't just go see every one of them. Every, but you know, for me, I just had one person. And I was in a state of life where I could actually go and, and visit far more often. And then he said this, he said, and, he said in a very kind way, I think I did a better job than you would have done. <laughs> and I go, all right, I love that, way to go. Well, it's not long after that, I get this phone call and it's Joe and he is in panic mode. He says, Randy, Randy, help, help. I thought maybe he was at the dying stage, something I said, what's wrong? He said, I just got a call from my next door neighbor. A 32-year-old couple. So they had two little girls, and the mama was at the kitchen just minutes earlier. Had been cooking, had a heart attack, apparently. Had died right there. They came to the scene, and they pronounced her dead. And the father, the husband, immediately called Joe and said, Joe, please help me. I don't go to church. My wife's never gone to church. We don't have any religion, but we went to your daughter's funeral. And we saw something we'd never seen. We heard something we never heard. We want that kind of a funeral for my wife because she said this only a week ago. We are driving alone, and for some reason, talking about Jessica's death, we happened to comment, you know, we don't go to church. We don't have a pastor. What would we do if we died? And the wife had said to the husband a week previous, Find out if Joe's pastor is still in Atlanta. If he is, I want him to do my funeral. So the man calls Joe, and he says, Joe, you got to help me. Would your pastor be willing to bury my wife? So Joe is calling me to ask me, and he says, Randy, I know you don't know this family, and you can't just bury everybody that knows anybody, and, you know, but in light of the circumstance, would you, would you be willing and my response to him was to say, Joe, did you know you don't have to be ordained to do funerals? <laughs> Joe, Joe, Joe. <laughs> Next thing I hear, Joe goes, oh, no, no, no. Now we're going too far. I will not do a funeral. Now I'll, I'll go to a hospital. I'll even witness. But no, I will not do a funeral. I said, that's really sad for your friend because I'm not going to do it and you're not going to do it. And that's going to really leave them in a bad place. He said, you can't do this. I said, I can too. I said, in fact, I'm going to be very nice. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do my job if you'll do your job. I'll do half the service if you'll do the other half, and I'll equip you to do your half. He did it very reluctantly. The day of the funeral, here's a man that's gone before corporate America without a shake, without a thought, and his hands were quivering. He was so nervous. I may have been a better communicator without 
any doubt, he was by far the most effective minister. He was the priest. I was the equipper of the priest. Do you understand that you are a, you're a priest or a priestess? Everyone? And no more is Jerry or anyone else the responsible one to do ministry than you are. More time, because paid to do that. That's his occupation. More time, but primarily as an equipper of the saints. Still a minister, as we're all ministers. But there's one final truth. It's very simple and short, but it's an important one. And that is, every Christian is to offer sacrifices. Every Christian. You know, you know this. They're no longer... No more animal sacrifices, no more blood to be shed. Christ has shed his blood, that is it now. But there's still sacrifices, and a lot of people don't understand that. There are still sacrifices. There are four that are given in the New Testament. And I'm just going to outline them, read them to you, comment very quickly, and that's it. Here they are. But to do so, I, I'm going to use a, uh, a visual memory aid. Now, our kids and younger people will be a, a little bit you know, feel a little bit better about maybe actually using these signals, that, these hand signals that I'm going to give, all right? And so um, these memory aids, I'm going to actually do something with my hands to remember all four because this would be my goal. I would like for every person here to be able in the morning when you wake up to be able to remember these four sacrifices. And if I say them, address them for a minute, and move on, you will not remember them. But I bet you will with a little bit of a memory aid. So the first one is the sacrifice is our lives, our lives. And so I'm going to use, each time it's going to be my hand, and I'm going to put my hand to my heart. If you'll just remember that. Some of you don't mind doing it now, fine, it'll just help, you know, but don't feel you have to, but hand to the heart. And that reminds you that it is our life. Here's what it says in Romans 12:1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that's your life, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It is a holy sacrifice. We give our daily devotion. We give our obedience to God. Now, in every case, when we're to offer a sacrifice, we're given a privilege and a responsibility. You know what the privilege that goes along with that is? It's called moral ability. Maybe a new term for some of you Christians as opposed to free will. Do we have free will? Oh, absolutely we have free will. But you know, until Christ does his work in our heart, we do not have moral ability. We're dead in our sins. He has to give us life through Christ. And when he comes into our hearts, we now have this thing called moral ability. We now can actually do that which God says to do and from the right motives that honor to him. Prior to that, we had the free will to do anything we wanted to do, but the only thing we had the ability to do was to sin, even in our most moral activity. It was in sin that we even do morality. And so that's our privilege, but we have a responsibility, and that's to surrender. So some of you remember the message, perhaps, that I gave back a, a year or two ago, a couple of years back? Probably not, but... It's a message I believe in more than any message I ever give, and that is, how do you appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit? And it's truth remembered, heart surrendered. That's how you appropriate the power of God. 
And so our responsibility, surrender. Surrender our life. First sacrifice, it's a hand to the heart, all right? Number two, our worship. I saw some of us here that were worshiping and put a hand up. That's uh, very common in worship today, very appropriate and good. Scripture happens. Hand goes up. Not wrong if you don't raise a hand, but it is a, it's, a, it's a gesture that says something, and it says honor to the Lord. That's worship. It's worship. So it begins with a hand to the heart. Now it goes to the air. Hebrews 13, 15 says this. Through him, Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to him. Can I make many of us feel a whole lot better about this? Fruit of the lips that give thanks. You tell me, any of you find yourself in circumstances of life that are so painful, so hard, can't understand the ways of God, trying to remember, yes, God, you know what's right, you're best. What we sang this morning in the previous part of the service, what we talked about, the whole thing, yeah, God, you're sovereign and you're in control. I know, but God, how do I believe that now? I'm hurting too deeply. Folks, God is not saying, I want your emotion right now. I want you to feel real good toward me. I want you to feel good about your circumstances, knowing that God uses all things, works together for good. He said, it is the fruit of the lips that give praise to God. And I love to be able to come before God in my hardest of times and be able to say, God, I feel nothing right now. But my lips will praise you, and they are my lips, and I choose to do it because I know you're God. I will give you praise. What is the privilege that he gives us? It's access to God. We get to come before God. What's the responsibility? To worship, even if it's just the fruit of the lips that give him praise. Number three, our service. So the hand was, first of all, on the heart. The hand goes in the air. And now, when I think of service, I think of handing out. I want to serve. I want to do something for you. So this is just a great picture, the hand down saying, can I help you? You're down, let me help you up. Let me serve you right now. Let me do something for you, even though you don't do something for me. That's okay. I'm going to serve you right now. That's called service. Hebrews 13, 16. This is what we read. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such, there it is, sacrifices, God is pleased. What's the privilege we have? Well, we're privileged to be given a spiritual gift. New term maybe to some. I hope you're learning, have an opportunity to learn about spiritual gifts. It's a God-given ability placed in every Christian at the moment of salvation to do something that is going to enhance the kingdom of God and to be used in that way. We learn our gifts, what our gifts are. Then what's the responsibility? To develop those gifts and to use them. Fourth and final, our resources. Now the hand. It started where? At the heart? Remember, it's kind of this thing right here. It starts with the hand. It goes up here. It goes down here. Now it goes into the wallet. <laughs> it goes into the pocket. Where our money are in your purse. And there's our resources. Philippians 4.18. But I have received everything in full have in abund and, I, and have in ab an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable 
sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. What's our privilege? God provides all of our needs. What's our responsibility? To meet kingdom needs. You got the four? Our lives, our worship, our service, and our resources. Maybe you can remember those. Every Christian, every Christian, we are priests. And as priests, we offer sacrifices. Were time enough, I'd go into the next verse 19, and it says there's something else, and that is we proclaim his excellencies. Everything he's done for us is to that end. Could not be anything more important. So seeker, can I just remind you in the text that in verse 6, Peter makes an appeal to you, and he says, you shall not be disappointed. That is, once you come to faith in Christ. You're going to be disappointed in this life right now? Yes. But ultimately, when all is said and done, when you and I enter into eternity, if Christians, only as Christians will we, and we enter there, we're going to see behind the curtains, and we're going to say, way to go, God. My worst experiences of life on earth were the greatest gift to me, and I am not disappointed. No one will ever be disappointed as a child of God. Seeker, hard to believe that, isn't it? I bet you, you just, you trust in that one. Also, he says a warning in verse 8. He says that those who don't come to faith, it says they're appointed to doom. And you hear now, preachers don't talk about this anymore. Watch out. There's a danger coming. Every time I think of somebody that I love and care for, and I think, appointed to doom outside of Jesus. Christian, if we believe that, we want to tell others, don't we? Believer, to you I say this. Know who you are. You're a priest, and you're priestesses. But also know what you do. You offer sacrifices. And I hope you'll remember this that it's always this order in Scripture. This is who you are. This is what you do. If you flip those around and say, this is what I do, you're missing the Christian life. It's always what he's done for us who makes us who we are. So you always go to Calvary's cross, stare at what he's done, see the gift he's made. That's what makes us who we are then we delight more and more as we grow in our faith in doing what God has called us to do. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the call you've made on our lives that as Christians, and we pray that we might as priests and as priestesses jump in and serve and live our life as ministers in a way we never have before. Give us new focus, new determination. For those here that are seekers outside of true relationship with you, Father, may they see the great love that you have on Calvary's cross, and may it change who they are so ultimately they become different people in what they do. Grant it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.